Welcome to AJHP Voices, a series of discussions with AJHP authors and interviews focused on contemporary issues that drive health outcomes. AJHP is the official journal of ASHP. Its mission is to advance science, pharmacy practice, and health outcomes. This is William Selmer for AJHP Voices. I'm speaking with two of the authors of the first article in his series from Michigan Medicine on the creation and work of a pharmacy compounding compliance team. With me is Dr. Bruce Chaffee, Assistant Director of Pharmacy for Analytics, Quality, Regulatory, and Safety, and Dr. Jamie Tharp, Manager of the Compounding Compliance Team. Bruce, let's first talk about the context for your article. Michigan Medicine, of course, is a very large health system. Most relevant to our discussion is that pharmacy sterile compounding takes place at 21 sites, 21 sites within the system. Could you elaborate on that point for listeners? Yeah, first, thank you for giving us the opportunity to talk about our article and and really all the hard work that's been done by the staff and leadership in our department. We're a tertiary care medical center and we have complex patients treated in acute and ambulatory care facilities all across our region. Although the demographics have really changed slightly, um, we, we have compounding facilities at the main hospital complex, at off-site locations. Some of the facilities are clean rooms and others are segregated compounding areas. You know, to support those areas, Pharmacy has well over 300 people that serve as compounders, checkers or supervisors of those compounded areas. and we also have a nuclear pharmacy and a home med pharmacy, and their compounding staff report to different departments. All of it requires a lot of coordination to ensure the work's standardized, the facilities are, are properly constructed and maintained, and people are compounding in a manner that minimizes the risk of contamination to our patients. Well, Bruce, you write in the article that uh, in the 14 months between June 2016 and August 2017, Pharmacy compounding practices were audited four times by regulatory agencies, the FDA, the State of Michigan, the Joint Commission, and the National Association of Boards of Pharmacy. Were there any patient safety incidents related to compounded sterile preparations that precipitated this level of scrutiny? Yeah, that's an interesting question. There's really a lot of things that were in flux at at the same time that all kind of came together all at once. Uh, In 2014, the state of Michigan instituted a compounding law that required sterile compounding pharmacies to be certified by an accrediting agency to verify compliance with USP guidelines. And we we picked the Joint Commission as our certifying agency to begin biannual inspections in 2017. Really, the state of Michigan and National Association of Boards of Pharmacy inspections um, and even the Joint Commission one were standard unscheduled regulatory visits. Uh, The NABP inspection was part of a state-sponsored coordinated inspection program of many hospitals in Michigan, so we weren't alone in that. As far as the patient safety aspect, the initial FDA visit occurred before either of us were in our current positions. It was triggered by a routine follow-up for a MedWatch report we made of several um, adverse patient reactions for an eye injection. Well, Jamie, let me turn to you. Uh, You mentioned in the article that the FDA inspection had especially important implications for your operations. Could you please explain that point? 
I'd be happy to. It certainly did have implications for our operations. One of the challenges that we faced in our initial response was that the FDA generally inspects in a different way than we had experienced from other regulatory agencies. In 2016, they were inspecting the 503As to CGMP standards, or good manufacturing practices. And while state laws and Joint Commission was holding us to USP 797 standards, our responses cited those standards from USP and we weren't deemed sufficient by the FDA and it resulted in a warning letter. The letter in turn triggered greater urgency on the part of our leadership at the hospital. On a side note, shortly after our inspection in 2016, the FDA announced that it was going to modify the way that they were inspecting 503A pharmacies. And after that point, they decided to focus on just verifying compliance with the 503A requirements and assessing prescription records and monitoring for insanitary conditions. So people who have been inspected since that time or 503A pharmacies uh, may not have the same experience that we did. Okay. Coming back to you, Bruce, uh, pharmacy department leadership decided in the fall of 2017 to create the compounding compliance team that's the focus of your article. Uh, give us the rationale for this decision, please, and tell us how it fit into the organizational structure of the pharmacy department. Yeah, another good question, Bill. Uh, in my experience, compliance with standards is everybody's job. You know, that job's perhaps a little easier to do in single facility programs where the workload's manageable and when the standards are, are more static. But when everybody gets busy, they start thinking someone else is focusing on the details to assure we're compliant. In our case, we had a highly distributed staff, as we talked about, in lots of compounding sites. Uh, work was increasing, and regulatory scrutiny at the time was enhanced as a result of that incident that occurred at New England Compounding Center. So we needed really a more focused effort. And so the idea emerged that because we had so many sites and staff, the work needed to be better coordinated. So when a specific individual or team is assigned that responsibility and cares a lot about achieving the goals, you know, the results generally follow. And we had seen that the expertise of a knowledgeable external consultant could identify issues, and we needed to continue that with a knowledgeable internal group that could, you know, focus on following up with fixing issues and making changes. Since our department had recently reorganized putting the Pharmacy Analytics Quality Regulatory and Safety Group, I like to call them PQRS because it's just too many words in that title, that had come under a different leader than operations. And so both reported to the chief pharmacy officer, but it created sort of an internal separation of duties in a quasi-check and balance system that we could use in our department uh, to have a team on one side and the operations on the other. When we hired the team, we specifically looked for experienced compounders who also had administrative skills or aspirations. Our um, initial hires were internal primarily, um, but we've been able to find skilled people externally in some of our more recent hires. Jamie, uh, what were the early changes the compounding compliance team focused on? When we first started in early 2018, the task of the team really included responding to the FDA warning letter. We were working hard with consultants to develop new policies and procedures we worked on developing an internal environmental monitoring program where we were collecting our own samples and reviewing those results. We also were re redesigning the education and assessments of our compounding personnel. And with a small team, that was a lot of work to get done. 
the early program planning and the FDA response was coordinated with weekly meetings with our chief medical officer, Jeff Desmond, our chief and associate chief pharmacy officer, Stan Kent and John Clark. Those two were co-authors on our paper. And then myself, the new compounding compliance manager. Our senior leadership oversight eventually transitioned to a monthly multidisciplinary oversight committee. And that committee has representation from all of our compounding areas and external stakeholders, like representatives from infection prevention and epidemiology, our facilities group, and environmental services. And we find that having all of those people at the table can really help us address the issues and improve our program oversight. Mm -hmm. Bruce, um, you say in the paper that uh, your initial concept of the compounding compliance team evolved over time. Could you comment on that? You know, as we mentioned in the article, there was tons of coordinated work that needed to be done just to address the issues with USP 797 compliance that were identified by us and some of the inspecting agencies and our consultants. You know, and all of us in, in healthcare are, are awaiting the revisions to USP 797 that have been on the immediate horizon probably for the last several years. We found that our compounding compliance team was overextended and working a lot of hours above their appointments. On top of that, there were other actions we were not doing that needed to be done, including expanding our operational area's internal self-auditing program to also include a formal compounding compliance team-based auditing program to provide that check and balance and external review of it. Work related to the proposed hazardous drug and non-sterile compounding standards were assigned to other people in our department, but those managers faced the same challenges as before, trying to implement these big programmatic changes while managing busy work in their operational areas. We thought it would be better for the organization to roll that work that they were supposed to do into the work done by the compounding compliance team, since that model had proven to be successful um, for the USB 797 work. So as a result, we did a thorough work assessment and plan for doing, um, doing the work that it was necessary to optimize our existing work um, standards for um, USB 795 and, and USB 800. Fortunately, our organizational leadership agreed with the plan. We added two more pharmacists and three more technician staff under Jamie's leadership. Okay. Jamie, um, we'll start with you on this one, and I'll want uh, Bruce to comment as well. Uh, you mentioned in the article five areas of team impact, uh, regulatory, facilities, personnel, policies, environmental monitoring. Could you comment on, uh, just pick one of these areas and uh, discuss a little bit the related issues and the way in which those issues were addressed? I believe facilities management has been one of the most valuable contributions of the compounding compliance team. And it's been um, really important for us to learn about the operations of our compounding spaces and help influence the optimization of how those spaces are functioning. That includes our management of environmental monitoring excursions and downtime responses. We've also been really active in the renovation of most of our compounding spaces and been influencing the design and construction of those spaces and making sure that they are implemented with the attention to detail that our pharmacies are needing. We also have been working really closely with facilities and maintenance to perfect our HVAC settings. And that's a real 
been a real key to maintaining our ISO classification standards. And it requires a technical knowledge that's not found in traditional pharmacy curriculums. I have learned a lot over the past couple of years. It's been really valuable to develop that knowledge of the mechanical and the ventilation systems to help understand how adjusting some settings can be utilized to manage our microbial and systems monitoring excursions. Managing our classified spaces is more than monitoring pressure and temperature and humidity trends. And understanding those mechanics has really helped detect issues that aren't detectable through typical alarm settings. Bruce, uh, which uh, of those five areas do, would you like to comment on? So I'm going to focus on personnel. And for me, the key part of the personnel aspect is education. You know, Jamie talked a bit about gaining knowledge not often taught in, in pharmacy curricula. Compounding is really a highly specialized area in our profession, and it's true not just for pharmacists, but for our technicians also. You know, most of the education that we have that's done is on the job as pharmacists and technicians, and the curricula that you get in, in your educational programs really just scratch the surface on it. We were making a ton of changes in our program in a compressed timeline, and we really needed to train our staff appropriately. Our goal was to change our culture by creating a best-in-class mentality for compounding. And so that started off with a foundational e-learning series that we, that we uh, purchased from, from a, a company to help our staff, our pharmacists, our compounding supervisors, uh, learn the basics about sterile compounding and garbing and gowning and other things. And we've also had to put out many, many tips and standard operating procedures and updates on a daily basis. And so there's a lot of education that goes along with that. Sure. You report uh, that at the time the article was written, uh, there were no outstanding compliance issues. I assume that's still the case. Is that right, Bruce? Right. We currently don't have any outstanding action items from a regulatory. Sure. Well, I know this is a difficult question to answer, but uh, perhaps each of you could comment on this and, and uh, uh, just take one uh, of the changes uh, that you made that you feel had uh, perhaps um, among uh, the largest impact uh, on, on the, uh, the progress that you were, were reporting on in this paper. From an impact perspective, initially it was having staff who are highly knowledgeable about compounding our program and facilities, the existing standards that are in the literature, plan changes, and the location of our records available when they meet with and escort surveyors. Jamie filled that role for us, but you know, given the team focus, I'm equally confident that any of our compounding compliance staff could serve in that role, and our organizational commitment to education compliance has allowed us to be very confident that our supervisors and lead technicians are also able to clearly articulate what to do when when they're asked questions by surveyors. Mm -hmm. Jamie, what would you nominate as uh, a key change that had uh, among some of the largest impacts on uh, uh, the progress you report here? Since starting the compounding compliance team, Inspectors have been very complimentary of the changes we've made to our environmental and personnel monitoring programs. We did a lot of work to centralize our record management through um, creating detailed investigation reports and managing how we file away our documents. And it really helped de demonstrate our dedication to quality assurance and our process improvement efforts. Having electronic trend reports, which helped summarize our results, was also a really effective tool, and it helped 
demonstrate our adherence to policy. We could use those trend reports to tell the story of how we manage um, routine results and then out-of-limit results and, and how we follow up on them. They really helped aid in the streamlining of our on-site inspection process as well. And we didn't have to dig into a lot of individual records because we were able to tell the story through our trends. Right. Well, Jamie and Bruce, as we draw our conversation to a close, I'd like to ask for some personal reflections on the journey that you describe in this excellent article. First, um, what lessons can be drawn from the way in which sterile compounding has evolved at uh, Michigan Medicine over the years? Jamie, would you start with that? I'd like to. It's easy to be overwhelmed by the evolving regulatory standards and challenging to adapt to the increasing intensity and scrutiny over the practices. With so many inspectors coming, we see that there's a lot of variety in the things that we're being asked. Before New England Compounding Center tragedy, regulatory inspections were related to sterile compounding were very uh, infrequent, and they were generally limited to our accreditation standards. With the addition of inspections from multiple agencies, we realized that we had to focus uh, our attention on learning the nuances of expectations from these different oversight bodies. We have developed a lot of expertise in the various and evolving standards, and it's really helped us engage with inspectors and mitigate observations because we're able to have educated conversations about what do the standards mean and how we've interpreted them. Mm -hmm. Bruce, uh, what would you like to say about lessons learned uh, in terms of how sterile compounding has evolved over the years? Sure, two things. First, really the importance of having good people with the right background and experience to run the program. And second, thoroughly investigating when any concerns, issues, or in incidents occur. I think a response to the initial event was typical of how most pharmacy departments respond, have responded to issues in the past, but perhaps it should have triggered a more thorough effort on our part at uncovering problems using root cause analysis or external consultants, basically rethinking all of our compounding practices from the practice uh, from the perspective of a regulatory surveyor. Well, the second uh, um, sort of area of reflection I'd uh, appreciate your comments on, uh, you know, in consideration of your article uh, being very laser focused on compliance with external standards, my question is, is compliance enough? In other words, to what extent at Michigan Medicine and other leading institutions, is there an explicit process separate from regulatory compliance that identifies and addresses institution-specific risks to patient safety related to sterile compounding. Jamie, let's start with you again. This is an interesting question. Um, because of all of the recent discussions that have been going on in pharmacy about the evidence behind the evolving compounding standards, and we have elected to exceed some minimum standards using data-informed decisions. A primary example occurs from our MediaFill program. When our new team assumed media fill sample collection responsibilities, we noticed a high rate of glove fingertip sampling failures. And we worked with our laboratory to rule out various contamination sources and identified the root cause to be our use of sterile isopropyl alcohol as our disinfectant of choice. USP allows for a range of disinfectants, including sterile isopropyl alcohol, so we were being compliant. However, we found that we didn't achieve the adequate passing results until we switched to a sporocytal disinfectant. 
after learning that lesson, we instituted a policy change. It, we require sporocidal disinfection during material handling of items being passed into all of our compounding locations now. Yeah, well, that's a great example of how uh, just paying attention to the standards, complying with the standards may not necessarily be enough. What would you say on this point, Bruce? I agree. It's a great question. Besides anonymous reporting, which we have both at the department and institutional level, I would suggest that a robust quality and safety program is one of the things a department can undertake that can identify risks from a different window. We have a very good program for reporting and reacting using tools such as trending safety metrics and root cause analysis, and people try to adopt best practices based on literature and our consensus. I'd like to see our program, and perhaps others might feel the same way, to be more proactive by routinely using failure mode and effects analysis to identify risk points and help prevent issues from arising. Mm -hmm. Well, Bruce and Jamie, uh, thank you so much for taking uh, time out of your busy schedules here to uh, discuss your article uh, with me. Um, I think it uh, reflects excellent work in our profession, and uh, uh, you're to be commended for uh, reporting it as thoroughly as you have. Thank you so much. For AJHB Voices, this is William Zelmer. I've been speaking with Dr. Bruce Chaffee and Dr. Jamie Tharp from the Pharmacy Department at Michigan Medicine, two of the authors of the article, A Compounding Compliance Team at an Academic Medical Center. Thank you for listening. That concludes this interview. For more information about AJHP, the premier source for impactful, relevant, and cutting-edge professional and scientific content that drives optimal medication use and health outcomes, please visit www.ajhp.org.